You're listening to Discovering Multifamily, where we discuss all educational topics in commercial real estate with an emphasis on multifamily apartment investing via syndication. And now your hosts, former NFL fullback Brian Leonard and Anthony Scandariato. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Discovering Multifamily podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Scandariato with Red Bank Properties. And boy, do we have a great show for you here today. I want to introduce to you Mark Hamilton, and he's going to be our guest today on the show. He's the founder of Hamilton Vans, which is a real estate investment firm with a portfolio of about uh, over $4.3 billion in AUM that specializes in primarily multifamily. Uh, and uh, his company is one of the nation's largest privately held multifamily syndication companies. He's got over 20,000 units under management, and Mark's really positioned himself as an expert. He's seen the ins and outs of all types of different multifamily investing. But one of the things that Mark's passionate about is the 1031 exchange tax program, uh, what we're going to focus on today, and how Mark has been able to utilize that to grow his business and help his, his clients. So, uh, Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's truly an honor. Thank you for having me, Anthony. It's a pleasure. Great. So, I guess let's just wind it back a little bit. What's a 1031 exchange and why is it popular in real estate. So um, section 1031 or the, 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 the term 1031 refers to section 1031 of the Internal Revenue Code, which has for more than 100 years allowed uh, property owners who own property as investment or income property to, to sell it uh, following certain guidelines and go out and purchase a replacement property and defer the capital gain that would otherwise be due at that time. Um, our, our research, which we've done a fair amount of uh, recently, indicates that a typical investor will do that once or twice or, or maybe three times, but it isn't, it isn't typically uh, a strategy that people uh, lean on uh, for eternity. Uh, some will uh, go quite long with it and then end up putting their properties in their estate, but they're, they're an outlier. It's about, about 85% of 1031 investors will uh, do it a do it a few times, you know, do it twice, do it three times, and then ultimately cash out. But it allows them to defer the gains at that time, and uh, it's it's a it's a fairly commonplace uh, practice. And yet, I think it still mystifies many people because uh, again, our research indicates that as many as six out of seven people who open a 1031 exchange uh, account, you know, who open a an account with an accommodator won't end up completing their exchanges. Um, and so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's utilized. It's not as fully utilized as it might be. Uh, and it's, it, it, from time to time, it becomes kind of a, a political football. Uh, that may happen now. That may happen this year or next year. It remains to be seen. But we, uh, we did a, a, a policy piece recently uh, that, that just got published last week. Uh, it was co-authored by CBRE and our research department, and it was directed specifically at the public policy aspects of 1031 exchanges and why they're good, uh, certainly for investors, but why they're also good for the economy, why they're good for uh, states and municipalities, and why they're even good uh, for the Internal Revenue Service. So if anybody wants to look for that, you'll find it on the web uh, it's, it's at Hamilton Zans and it's a 1031 uh, policy piece. 
Excellent. Well, we'll have a link to that in the show notes at the end. Appreciate it. Can you give us some of the highlights from that piece? Of course. Maybe three bullet points. Uh, yeah. Again, what we what we what we learned is that uh, we already knew that many people who go into exchange accounts don't end up uh, following through, and I think that's primarily because they they just can't find something that they want or something that they're comfortable with. Um, but we do know that that very few investors uh, take it as an ad infinitum strategy. It's a it's a it's a short term or an intermediate term uh, strategy, and. Curiously, we, we, we know that uh, 1031s are good for cities and municipalities because they lubricate the gears of, of property transactions. And property transactions uh, generally uh, generate transfer taxes for states and county, excuse me, for cities and counties and probably sometimes states. Uh, people who hold uh, properties in exchanges tend to hold them for around 10 years. People who, who, who cash out tend to hold them for 11 years. Um, and so right away, you get more transactional activity. Um, again, we, we believe it's good for cities and counties. But the other thing we discovered is that um, by, by when an investor does uh, defers the game, they will, they will go out and purchase another property. And while their, their equity presumably has grown from from their last asset, the, the amount of basis that they have doesn't go up. And so it, in the end, it, it ends up generating uh, more tax revenue uh, off of the investor's income stream, although it defers the capital gain, but the capital gain, again, tends to get paid uh, within one or two cycles of mm-hmm. the 1031. So, you know, it's a little bit counterintuitive, but we believe that it is accretive uh, not only to city and count cities and counties, uh, but to the but to the federal government, and uh, we also know that it that it's good for the economy. There's a lot of uh, uh, renovation and repair that gets done on uh, the acquired properties following an exchange that might not get done otherwise. And there's a a very deep analytical paper. It's called the Ling Petrova paper, and it's named after professors Ling and Petrova. Uh, you can, again, you can find it on the web, um, but they, they go into greater detail about the economic uh, significance of it uh, as a jobs generator. And so if sure. it's generating jobs, it's generating payroll taxes. If it's causing investors to have more income that is not sheltered, again, that's generating uh, more tax for the IRS and for states. No, no, and I, I agree with everything you're saying. Um, and the 1031 for is not just for real estate, right, Mark? It's for many different types of asset class. I mean, you hear it a lot about you hear a lot about it specific to real estate, but what else is it commonplace for? What other types of transactions? Well, um, historically, the 1031 in and of itself is about real estate only. Now, when we talk about exchanges, uh, until 2017. There were other types of exchanges you couldn't do. Obviously, if you sold some stocks and bought some stocks, that's not an exchange. You pay the capital gain on the profit that you've made. But historically, you could exchange a life insurance policy for a different life insurance policy and not pay capital gains tax. And for many people who collected uh, fine art, um, fine art for sure. I'm not. I don't know about antiques, but people who collect fine art, they used to be able to sell their fine art and do an exchange. The, the provisions for other asset classes were taken out of the Internal Revenue Code 
2017. So right now, uh, to the best of my knowledge, the only uh, asset class that uh, is eligible for tax deferred exchanges is real estate. Okay. So yes, yeah, so historically in the past, uh, there's different, different asset classes. And I know that um, there are different mechanisms that actually are more popping up now, although they've been around. Deferred Sales Trust is one of them. Mm-hmm. Have, you, have you had any experience with that? And any thoughts well, on that? Well, I don't know what a deferred sales trust is. Is it, yeah. is it possible that you're thinking of a Delaware statutory trust, a DST? Separate. They're two, okay. they're two separate items. And we okay. could we could chat offline about it, but it's it's another mechanism to you know defer the capital gains taxes. But they're you're basically holding it in a trust instead, um, okay. you know, for a period of time, and then you know they charge administrative fees on it. There's upfront fees on it, so you have to do the numbers and see if it makes sense. But I did hear that that was very competitive to 1031. So, uh, but but regardless, the 1031 has been around, like you said, for a very very long time as it's specific to real estate. Now that we have the new administration change, has there been any chatter in regards to um, any changes with the 1031 provisions? I know they had some that were income-based. You bet. Uh, Um, So uh, Biden made it quite clear uh, before the election that he was going to shine a bright light on 1031s and, and look to either tighten up the rules or even possibly repeal them altogether. Uh, last I saw in terms of specifics was that uh, they would they would they would allow to, that they would be how do I want to say it? they'd be preserved for households making less than four hundred thousand dollars a year. But if you're if you have an adjusted gross of over four hundred thousand dollars a year, then you wouldn't be allowed to defer the gain. Um, at one point last year, there was this there was there was concern uh, that the Biden administration might repeal them altogether. Uh, it seems that the more recent uh, approach has been to to repeal the benefit for households earning uh, $400,000 a year or more. Um, and it just remains to be seen. Um, there's a there, there, there obviously is a very uh, active uh, real estate. Uh, there's there's a number of active real estate lobbies. But um, part of the reason we, that we wrote the paper is that we do feel like they're misunderstood. Um, I think the. Um, uh, under Paul Ryan, uh, the Republicans didn't have much interest in preserving the 1031. They just wanted to flatten the tax code um, or flatten the tax rates. And, and the Democrats do, uh, of which I am one, um, do tend to misunderstand uh, completely and look at it as a giveaway. Uh, what, what the 1031 really is, is a, is a way to reward long-term savings for an interim period of time. You know, we do that with uh, the capital gains tax. If it's short-term capital gains, it's one rate. If it's long-term capital gains, it's a different rate. And, and certainly savings that's invested um, in the communities and in the tax base uh, is very important. But, but I do think that it's the, the two primary benefits of it uh, are, again, that it rewards uh, long to or intermediate to long-term savings. And the other thing it does con- conceivably is allow people uh, to bank themselves, if they can, if they can take their gains and redeploy them, then they might not need to take out as much financing on their next real estate transaction. And I think those are the two big benefits for the consumer, and they're, to my eye, they're they're fairly rational and and commonplace. Sure, sure. So in in your mind, if it does get completely repealed, do you think that in the real estate market you'll have a lot less? Sounds like you'll have a lot less transaction volume, uh, you know, a lot less 
you know, sellers looking to sell. Um, and, you know, the, it might even affect property values to some extent. If it does I think get- both of those things will, will be true. I think it will reduce transaction velocity, the number of transactions fall. I think it'll be counterintuitive in terms of the outcome for the IRS. I think I think revenue to the IRS will actually go down. I think transfer tax revenue will go down, and I think property values will go down. Um, and, it, and it won't, you know, it won't necessarily uh, benefit jobs. And it's just uh, again, I do think it's misunderstood. From a policy sure. standpoint, sure. And our, to be honest, okay. And our our paper, um, we took a really complex subject uh, 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 in terms of, or I should say, uh, uh, starting point, which is the Ling and Petrova paper. It's very, it's it's about eighty pages of, of dense economic material, and and we took that and, and boiled it down to ten points. Uh, that I think are very plain spoken um, and easily approached by anybody who's curious with the subject. And, and it, again, it, it's composed 100% from the standpoint of public policy. Excellent. No, that's, that's great. Uh, so I'll definitely include a link to that in the show notes. And so how, and just on a personal anecdotal note, how has the 1031 enabled you to grow your business over your career? Yeah. So, uh, every, every, my wife and I bought our first property in 1985 and, uh, you know, it was kind of an all hands thing. It took, it took the two of us and her parents and my parents, uh, to be able to get the thing airborne, but we did. And, and, and I will tell you that almost every transaction that I've touched, uh, or every property acquisition that I've touched in the last 35 years has been with partners or, or fellow investors. So we have a lot of experience uh, investing with other people and have completed probably 300 acquisitions over the last 35 years. Um, it's, it's, been, uh, it's been a good thing uh, for, for, for me and for our organization because it's allowed us to, to retain uh, investors who wanted to stay in and go on to the next thing. And we've, we've found out uh, as we've gone, that, that when somebody wants out, if we're in a partnership and somebody wants out, it's not hard to buy them out. Uh, and, we, and, and, there, and there isn't any gamesmanship or, or any clever tricks involved in that. When we, when we close the sale, you can see exactly, uh, you can see exactly what the, the settlement statement uh, showed. And, and you just buy people out who, who want out, you buy them out at uh, their allocated uh, percentage interest of the property or, or of the proceeds. So that part of it's straightforward. And, you know, historically, 80 to 90 percent of people tend to want to stay in for a while. Uh, there was one thing that happened in the 2017 rules, and that was that uh, under the old rules, if you had a partnership and 50 percent of the participants wanted out, then that was what's called a deemed liquidation. And you basically liquidated the partnership at that point in time, even if you had people that wanted to continue on. Under the new rules, they've, they've repealed that. And so any, any number of people that want to stay in can stay in. Any number of people that want to go out can go out. And it doesn't blow up uh, the partnership and it doesn't blow up the exchange. But, but primarily, to your point, is it's, it's allowed people to, to stay in and, have, and, and earn gains over a longer period before cashing out. And, and it's, been good for, it's been good for word of mouth. Uh, as recently as, as 2001, when Tony and I became partners, we probably had, we probably had a few dozen clients. Um, and growing it uh, uh, just by word of mouth without any uh, advertising 
commission, commission salespeople, solicitations, one thing or another, without any of that. Uh, word of mouth has gotten us to a point where we have a much larger client base uh, and, and have been able to, to do bigger transactions. Excellent. And a quick question on the 1031. This is more for my audience. Um, is there a minimum limit for the 1031 you're able to defer and a maximum as of, as of right now, as it no, stands? There isn't. Yeah. Um, and curiously, the, the, the 1031 rules in and of themselves don't say how long you have to hold the property. Uh, you know, for long-term capital gains, we're all taught that you need to stay in something for at least a year. Uh, uh, to, to the best of my knowledge, um, and unless it's changed recently, you don't have a minimum ownership period. And so you can, you can make a, you know, you can make a small short-term profit and defer it. You can make a large short-term profit and defer it. And what's required is that you have to replace all of your uh, investment proceeds into the next property and into um, uh, expenses that classify as if they're real estate. For example, if you use a real estate lawyer in your transaction, that would classify as a real estate cost. Um, you know, commissions classify as a real estate cost, but you have to replace all of your, your, your cash proceeds into the next asset or more, and you have to replace all of your financing or more. Right, right. So is there an, an instance where you know, you're trying to exchange, how about if you're trying to exchange to a greater property, like you just mentioned, or more, you have to come up with the difference in terms of the equity contribution. Uh, but how does that work if you want to do another exchange or mm -hmm. if you just want to flat out sell? Is it, you know, so typically, what are you taxed on? Yeah. So typically how we'll do that, um, we have we have 90 to 95 apartment communities that we that are presently in our portfolio. And at any given time, we'll sell a few of those uh, in a calendar year and then put the proceeds into uh, an account with an accommodator and then go buy another property. And so it's, it's not necessarily easy to line it up uh, perfectly so that you have, you know, you have the, we, we refer to up legs and down legs. Your, your down leg is the property that you sold. Your up leg is the property that you're bought or that you're buying. And um, needless to say, it's a, it's a rare instance where things line up exactly, where you have the exact amount of equity that you need for your up leg and you, you're going to take out the exact amount of financing. Usually you're going to take out more financing, usually you're going to put in more equity. And if you come in short on either of those, it, it does create capital gains exposure, which is referred to in this case as boot. I don't, I don't know who came up with that. Um, <laughs> but um, what, what we'll do when we go out and buy the next property, we, we, we always have people who want to uh, continue to invest. Um, and in many cases, we'll have clients who need to complete their own exchanges. So it's, it's a little bit of a jigsaw puzzle for us uh, on the up leg because we'll take, we'll take our partnership equity that we have from, from one or more properties that we need to put into uh, an acquisition property. And then we'll also work with clients that we have who are trying to uh, uh, achieve their own 1031 gains and you basically patch it together. And then if we need to, if we need to add more capital uh, from time to time, we'll form another partnership entity that will also go on title. Um, and from time to time, we'll resize uh, the partnerships by, by uh, allowing them to offer more shares, which while it does dilute people in the partnership, it doesn't dilute them in, in terms of their percentage interest in the real estate because that money would have been raised somewhere else. Right. No, that, that, that makes sense. 
Um, has the timing, they haven't, again, they haven't touched the 1031 uh, provision in, in a long time. So has any of the, the timing still remains the same in terms of the identification period, et cetera, correct? And what is that correct. again for the So you have, uh, from the time you sell uh, uh, a property, which again, we refer to as the down leg, the IRS probably refers to it as the relinquished property. Mm -hmm. um, but from the time you close escrow on that, you, you have to do two things. You cannot touch the money. It's called constructive receipt. You have to make sure that the funds go to, to a, a third party who's going to hold the funds. Um, that person is, that, a, firm, a firm like that is typically referred to as an exchange accommodator or an exchange facilitator. So you'll, the title company will send your proceeds to an exchange accommodator. Then you have, from the time you uh, dispose of your sale property, you have 45 days during which you must um, designate the, the property that you're going to buy. And it, there's some flexibility there. You have, uh, under the basic strategy, you can, you can designate up to three properties, but you must close at least one of them. You can close more than one, but you must close at least one. Um, the only way you can uh, get out of the 45-day uh, designation mandate is to simply acquire your purchase property within 45 days. And then, then you needn't designate because you've already done it. Um, after the 45 days, you have another 135 days to close your purchase. And there are no exceptions. Um, the only time I've ever seen any flexibility in that was last year during the pandemic uh, because the financial and real estate markets were upside down. Uh, they did extend um, some of the dates, but people should assume that those dates are hard and fast. So sell your property 45 days, designate three properties, another 135 days or less, you purchase your exchange property and you're done. Right. So have you ever run into a timing issue on throughout your career? Just oh, you can. I mean, you can easily get into you can easily get into to tight time frames. But no, we've never we've never been outside of those dates. And uh, we, we because we're constantly in the markets and, and, and this is what our organization does. We're, we're very on top of it. We, we know how to, we know how to uh, make sure that we're going to be able to cover our bets. And we do that in, uh, uh, in, in large part because given that we always have uh, a demand to buy things uh, for our own partnerships and for clients, we're constantly looking for property. We'll look at, we'll take in three to 4,000 submissions a year We'll underwrite two to 250. We'll write 50 offers. And, you know, in a good year, we'll get 15 to 25 assets. And so we know what our deal flow looks like. And so it's, it's much easier for us to, to mind our P's and Q's on our timelines. But, but sometimes you will run into an investor who doesn't quite understand it or who, who gets late in the game. And nobody's happy uh, when they're late in the game because you worry about blowing your exchange. But if you, you know, if you, if you work, if, if you're doing it on your own, or if you're doing it with a service provider like us, what you want to have, you want to make sure you get in the game early, right? That you engage early, that you spend plenty of time, um, even before you put your property on the market. But certainly while it's on the market, you need to be working with the people who are going to help you complete the exchange. And, and we generally recommend that sellers build some extension options into their their sales agreements, so that if, if, if things are a little tight in terms of timing, 
they can extend the closing date on their sale by 30 days or 60 days. And it, it, it generally, um, it generally becomes less stressful if you spend more time up front. You know, that makes sense. Just that usually have to have the buyer agree to it, which to be honest with you, a lot of buyers would do agree to it if I was trying to buy it. Well, it's a, it's a seller's market um, right now. And it's been that way for a while, but you know, a, a buyer, you know, in the old days, the buyers were the ones that, that wanted time because they were the ones that were going to scramble to put their equity and put yep. their financing together. Um, these days, it's it's not uncommon for, for the seller and the buyer both uh, to see some benefit in having extension options. Right. Well, that's excellent. So when you uh, sell your assets, and I know you, you do, you don't sell often, but when you do, you do you always do the 1031 or has there been? Almost always. Um, yeah. I would say 90 to 95% of the time. I, okay. I can only think of two properties um, that we sold where we, um, where at least one of the partnerships uh, didn't continue. And one of them was because there was a, a, an investor who had a very significant uh, position in one of the partnerships and, <laughs> and needed to cash out to reconcile some matters with his family. Um, and so we just liquidated that partnership. The rest of the ownership entities uh, traded forward. And then we had another one um, where we didn't make all that much money. We made some money, um, but we didn't have, we, it wasn't wildly profitable. And there were people who were, who were content to get their money back. Uh, so we just liquidated that partnership. But I would say better than 95% of the time, we're going to do a 1031. Awesome. Well, to find out more about 1031s, how could people reach you, Mark, and, and to learn more about you? and your company? So the, Ham, the, the Hamilton Zans website is actually a good website. It's user-friendly. It tells, it, it speaks to the, to the subject matter easily. Um, again, we will be putting out, and the paper did post uh, last Thursday, um, but otherwise I'll, I'll be happy to give you my email. Sure. And that's uh, M-A-R-K at Hamilton, H-A-M-I-L-T-O-N, Zans, Z as in zebra, A, N as in Nancy, Z as in zebra, E as in edward.com. Great. And we'll have a link to your email as well as if I have the ability to post the PDF of your, um, of the piece um, in the show notes or a link to it, I will do that as well as the Hamilton Zans website, which I went on before and it's, it is beautiful. It's pretty easy to use. So yeah, it's pretty, pretty uh, easy to look at. Yeah. So definitely check that out. And if you liked what you heard and or saw today, please give us a review and rating on iTunes. It'll help uh, Mark and my message get out to a greater audience. That's just the way it works. So we would appreciate that. Well, and, we're, you know, we're traveling again. So maybe we'll have a cup of coffee in uh, New Jersey at some point. That would be great. I'd love to have you and love to have you back on the show. Great, Anthony. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you.